the Black Doctors Podcast, Season 6. Hello and welcome back to Black Doctors Podcast. I'm Stephen, your host. Thanks for joining this week's episode. It's actually a recap from earlier in Season 6. We're getting to the end of the year, getting close to the end of Season 6. And we kicked off the season with an incredible panel featuring Dr. Italo Brown, Dr. Nate Jones, Dr. Kana Ward. And we're going to revisit that panel because it was packed with so much information. Tune in uh, as we close out the season. We're still looking for sponsors. If you want to join and partner with us and support the effort we're doing to increase diversity in the healthcare workforce. And now a word from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by Picmonic. In 2011, two medical students came up with the ingenious idea to combine medical education with unforgettable characters and ridiculously memorable stories. Featuring over 35,000 high-yield facts and graphics, Picmonic has helped over 600,000 students improve exam scores and perform better clinically. Picmonic has resources for pre-med and medical students, as well as other healthcare professions. Check out the show notes for a link to their website. Mention the podcast when you subscribe. With Picmonic, you can study less, but remember more. Hello, welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. We're kicking off um, a new version of the show. I guess we're we're reintroducing the show. And we're going to bring you some different content. We really want to pull in some different perspectives and provide relatable, actionable advice and information to you, our listeners, across the spectrum from pre-med all the way to attending physicians. I am joined this episode, Dr. Kiana Ward, a good friend of mine. We went to Howard together. She is an obstetrician, gynecologist practicing now in the South. Uh, Dr. Italo Brown is on the line. He is an emergency medicine physician, graduated from Meharry Medical College, currently practicing out in California. Um, probably have another couple guests join us later on in the session. We're going to jump into it. Uh, Dr. Ward, Dr. Dr. Brown, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, it is good to be back because you guys have both been on the show before. Kiana, you were, uh, I think you guys are both the first or second seasons. Think so, yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> Got it. <laughs> season, season, which is why, which season. is why you're back to share all of this wisdom. In June, we know that it is a huge month for transitions. Medical students are transitioning into residency programs. Residents are transitioning into fellowship programs, as well as becoming attending physicians. And we want to have a conversation and talk about different aspects and things you experience in your journey mistakes that were made, and how we can help this next generation of folks as they, uh, you know, run the gauntlet and have these experiences. So let's jump into it. Um, Dr. Ward or Kiana, we'll go by first names. Kiana, what was your transition like from medical school, Howard University, to residency at SUNY Downstate? Um, you know, I, I feel like the transition was, it was easy in some parts because I was returning back to New York. I'm originally from New York. So um, relocating from Washington, D.C., where we went to medical school to Brooklyn. Um, I felt like I was returning home. So in that aspect, you know, I knew the area. I, I knew the, you know, I knew the location of where the hospital was. So trying to get familiar to the area wasn't a difficult, wasn't a difficult aspect. But, you know, trying to get acclimated to a new hospital, uh, a new hospital system. And um, now being the M.D., you know, mm. to me, there was a sense of overwhelmness. I was feeling overwhelmed. And did I did I actually belong? Was this what I was supposed to actually be doing? So initially, I had those feelings kind of kind of set in. Yeah. Itala, what about you? And you were you're coming from Meharry um, and then moving up to were you from New York? Or you, it was your first time going to New York? No. Nah. Yeah. No, no, no. It wasn't the first time. But uh, I mean, I lived in Boston for a little while for grad school, so I had traveled to New York, but uh, I would have to say it's it was kind of a, a culture shock. Yeah, I, I did most of my undergraduate stuff in the South and then medical school in the South, but being from the West Coast and having done grad school in what I would say New England, which is not the same as New York <laughs> at all. Like, they're just different, you know, from a, a cultural sense, but Going to New York uh, was, again, like I said, extreme culture shock. I think the the part that was most reassuring was realizing that the patient populations that I was going to see were similar to what I trained with. Mm. You know, I, I was in North Nashville. It was 
a bunch of people of color. And I was like, I'm going to go to the Bronx where there's surprise people of color. <laughs> so it wasn't like, you know, some reach, but the biggest hurdles for me were like trying to figure out where I was mm-hmm. going to live and realizing that like the cost of living was dramatically different than what I was used to for the five years I was in, you know, Nashville. I was one one year post back four years of med school. And I was like, man, I've been used to paying a certain amount. That changed. Um, but also like not going up there with a car and realizing that now all of my transportation would be by foot, by like, you know, straight up Nike <laughs> or subway. It was one or the other, Nike subway or someone's vehicle. So those are things that most folks don't think about when you uh, match it to a program. And for me, it all came down like at once as this confluence of new experiences that I was. Yeah, absolutely. That that new experiences is huge. The geography going from a different part of the country. I moved from D.C. to the Midwest. I didn't know that the Midwest had its own little vibe. There's a lot of flannel. People were really nice. Um, Different (laughs) types of food, cheese curds. But it was something I wasn't quite prepared for. And fortunately for me, it was an easy transition because the Midwesterners are nice. Keanu, uh, Italo, y'all were going to New York. Um, <laughs> you have to figure out what you're going to say before uh-huh. you say it. <laughs> you better make sure that you say yeah, the right stuff. But, you know, I, th- I think, you know, it's reasonable to, you know, a lot of the nurses there that I worked with had, had been there for 20 plus years. And you have this new physician that comes on and just graduated from medical school. It's all in your approach and how you talk to people. And yeah. so first, just, you know, introducing yourself, I think, is really important. Like some people just pop up and just think, hey, you know, I'm Dr. Ward. You have to listen to everything. No, I respect, you know, the experience that you have as a seasoned nurse. I think I'd like to do this. Do you think that that's cool? Like, wh- wh- what, is your, what is your thought on that? So it's only your approach to people. I'd have to also agree that when you figure out just how to communicate with people from a, a, a at a level of respect, uh, it, it was like currency. It really went a long way. And they could tell when a resident comes from a place mm-hmm. of entitlement mm-hmm. or feeling privileged. And, and that'll get cut down real quickly by nurses who've been working in that space for 20 years, 15 years. They don't really have mm-hmm. time for that. But they'll let you know. I think the other part I was going to say is realizing that hospital systems are all different. And just because where you did your rotations at or because you trained here, you had all of these different things, you might land somewhere where none of that's available. Or you may start somewhere where none of that's available and realize that there's more intricacies than you've ever really known. Uh, And so the learning curve on in both directions is pretty steep. Yeah, because we, we we know, man, it's it's May when we're recording this. We're going to release these episodes in June, but probably about June, July, we're going to see some tweets where somebody's pissed off some nurses. Or yeah. and, and the thing is, even man. if the folks that you're working with don't come out and say that they're offended, um, if there is something that's there, it creates this hostile work environment um, yeah. where they, you know, you need to have trust going both ways between yourself as an intern or a resident. And the folks that you're working with in the hospital. So it's not, you know, bending over backwards um, to the extent that you're compromising the things you learned in medical school. But like Kiana said, it's a lot of it's how you approach people, um, respect the fact that they've been in this hospital system for years. Um, they, they're seasoned nurses and they have a lot that they can learn, um, that they can teach you and you can learn from um, if you're open and receptive. But if, if you get off on the wrong foot, you know, if you do, apologize, apologize, um, make it right and, and keep it pushing. You got to humble yourself or you will be yeah. humbled very 100%. expeditiously. When, when it comes to the move, um, Itala, we'll start with you. How did you fund your move? Man, I'm about to bring Uh-oh. the trauma back. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one, it was like a lot of it was, you know, in, in church, they call it love offerings. Where, where someone or some groups of people love you so much that they're willing to give you some money. Uh, so it was some love offerings involved. It was uh, a credit card. You know, I had opened up a credit card specific for my move. Uh, and I, I was, you know, pretty responsible in undergrad, you know, I'm sorry, in, in medical school. But, you know, you still have to be conscious of like the debt that you take on during that move. So I was trying to be as uh, fiscally responsible as possible. 
the other thing that I did was I relied upon people who were already living there to bring things. You know, I, New York is different in the sense that there are folks who are always trying to get rid of something that's in their house. <laughs> and so I reached out to my program in advance. I was like, are there any residents who are leaving, you know, that are trying to get rid of a couch or some, you know, appliances, something that I don't have to haul up there. And I got a lot of things for low prices because they were trying to get rid of them. And I was trying to, you know, put hmm. it in my place. That was the first thing. The second thing I would say is I cut a lot of the costs down because, uh, again, like I didn't bring a car. I didn't have to ship it. I didn't drive it. I was like, I just left the car where it was at. <clears throat> and I, I traveled very light. Um, and I think the last thing I'll say is New York is very unique in the sense that you have to essentially be vetted to find a place to live. Hmm. You, you got to go through some process. It's either you are going to get your credit checked. They're going to want an exorbitant amount up front. Um, some places there are programs that you have to qualify for, whether it's through your residency program or the hospital. They can have like hospital specific housing, but you have to go through one of these processes. And the key to that was doing it early, like not waiting, because if you waited, you were going to end up essentially paying uh, top dollar for a place. And so I would just recommend doing the due diligence uh, by asking the questions up front and not waiting to find out like how you're going to finance a live uh, a move where you're going to live and everything related to it. Kiana, how'd you fund your uh, move to New York? Um, my, my parents helped me out a lot, um, especially like once we had graduation. I got gifts from financial gifts from family members, so I just saved it. I didn't go on some huge shopping spree or anything like that. I saved it. I knew I needed at least a down payment for first month's last month's rent. So um, I used all that towards, you know, towards my, towards my living expenses and my family kind of helped me here and there. So, so extremely uh, grateful. Thank God. Kiana yeah, <laughs> knows I'm one of the cheapest people that she knows. Um, so what had happened was. Oh God. <laughs> our graduation oh God. was oh May Lord. 6th. At oh. Howard University College of Medicine. I don't know how we made it to graduation, but we did. That's another story from a time another place. For the month of May, I saved rent. My brother lived about two hours south of me in Virginia. So I rented uh, a van from Avis. It was a 15-passenger van, right? Because it's like 30 bucks for a day, unlimited miles. So I took the van to my place in D.C., pulled all the seats out of the van, and it made enough room for me to put all my stuff in this 15-passenger van. So as I broke my lease for the month of May, so I moved all my stuff to this 15-passenger van, drove two hours south to my brother's house, put it all in his garage, drove back to D.C., put the seats back in the van, returned the van the next day. 30 bucks for a rental, unlimited miles. All I paid for was gas. Uh, to get my stuff to Chicago, uh, it turned out that there's this thing where Amtrak will ship stuff. So, and I didn't really have any furniture. Um, at the moment. So I was able to pack my stuff up on a pallet and then Amtrak actually shipped it to Chicago. And then I picked it up. I rented another 15 passenger van and boom, had my stuff in my apartment. So that's how I, I uh, moved for the low. Now that the big mistake that I made was I did need extra money and different banks will offer short term loans, uh, relocation loans specifically for residents. So I went, you know, looked up these programs I think you can get a max of 15000 out. I went to Wells Fargo and I was like, nah, I won't need fifteen. Let me just get six. So I got 6000 and that money went fast. It might have been some of the uh, Perry graduation celebrations, but it was gone. Uh, so I had to go back and get another 6000 And then I got uh, some more money. I ended up taking the full, whole $15,000 out. But each time that I had to go back, I was charged another origination fee. So little did I know, I ended up paying a lot of money for that $15,000. I was able to pay it off during residency, uh, but that's one of the mistakes that I made um, in, in my moving process. You He's going to find a way. <laughs> you are a hustler for real. This man said, I took the seats out the damn van. <laughs> innovative. He's yeah, going to find go. a way. He's going to find a way. Why didn't you just get a bigger 
<laughs> Why you just get like a U-Haul? They charge by the mile. An additional fifteen to twenty dollars. U-Hauls charge you by the mile. Hey there, I hope you're enjoying listening to the show. I want to take a minute to talk about TrueLearn and thank them for sponsoring the Black Doctors Podcast. TrueLearn is a medical exam preparation company that helps you outperform on your boards. If you are a medical student or resident physician, you should definitely check out their products. If you sign up, please use the code BDPODCAST and you'll get a discount. They have resources for both DO students as well as MD students and even physician assistants. When it comes to residency licensure, they offer question banks for over eight different specialties. TrueLearn gives analytics that give you insight into your study habits, your question responses, and tracks you along with your peers. Students and residents average 20% improvements after completing a TrueLearn SmartBank. Check them out at TrueLearn.com. And again, remember to use the code BDPODCAST to receive your special discount. Now back to the show. How did you adjust to 80-hour work weeks and studying? Kiana. You know, the, the thing for me was that I was so happy to just have a position in residency. It was so hard for, you know, people that we know. I was able to match into the field that I love. So I took that as this is on me. Like this is riding on me. So, you know, the 80 hour work week, sure. Yeah, you know, it may not may, may not be the be- the best at the time. But I need to take the four years that I have at this moment and get the most out of this situation because patients and their babies are relying on me in the future. And that's really important. So if it means that in the next four years, I got to work 80 hour work weeks, there are events that I have to miss because I have to study. I have to spend X amount of money for exams. You know, I I had to take that and just know that that, you know, came with this responsibility. I think for me, it was acknowledging the fact that there was an end, like every single day. I was like, I just got to make it to the end of this. And like, that's it. You know, I have to look at, I was like, I just have to make it to the end of this. And then whatever happens when I leave is what happens. And then I do it again the next day or the next day after that. So uh, reframing it and keeping that perspective was one thing that helped me a lot. The other part is I got better and more efficient at the other things that I did because I realized that I was going to need sleep. So you get real particular about what you're going <laughs> to spend your time on when you're like, yo, I, I'll be back up <laughs> in like six hours <laughs> or whatever. You know, you, you start being like, yeah, that episode is not that important to me right now. Or, you know what? Hmm. I'm going to eat these leftovers (laughs) (laughs) or I'm going to eat this hospital food because I'm not about to go home and try to prepare no new meal. It's going to put me back by hour. I just got really, really uh, discerning around what I spent my time with. I think the last part I'll say is um, when I slept, I slept. Like I figured out how to maximize and optimize my sleeping. I was was team blackout (laughs) curtains, team eye mask, team melatonin team whatever i needed to go to sleep uh i quiet space i didn't put my phone in the room when i went to sleep either i got one of them old school alarm clocks not the one with the bells but just like a regular you know slap the digital alarm clock because i realized that your phone in your room became a distraction i would never get sleep because mm-hmm. i always roll over be checking somebody's you know mm-hmm. messages or whatever nope do not disturb phone outside the room uh and i will put on this uh alarm clock so it just came down to me deciding that like all of this was a process and like every other process, there is an end point and I got to just get to the end point. Um, for me, man, the, the adjustment, what I say is just like coming from uh, undergrad to medical school, you just got to step your game up. It's like as an undergrad student or as a freshman, you can't imagine the things that you're going to learn as a senior. As a senior in college, you can't imagine what you're going to learn your first and second year of medical school. And your body just kind of adapts to um, synthesizing yeah. that much information at a time. And for some reason, that same thing happens when you transition into residency. Now, me, I am terrible about sleeping. I, I don't sleep. I am a night owl. Yeah. Um, I say that, you know, for whoever's listening, because I wish I could. <laughs> man, if I took melatonin, I'm going to be out. I will not wake up the next morning. Like, I will be late. 
You got to eat half of it. <laughs> got the titrate, brother. <laughs> got the titrate. I, w- I wasn't going to risk it, but I will, man, I'll be tired in the afternoon, but as soon as it hits nine o'clock, I'm wide awake. And I'm usually getting to bed wow. at like midnight, 1230. And that was like most of residency. And I would just like grind it out. Um, so it's possible. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, coffee in the afternoons. And sometimes like, like Kiana said, the gravity of knowing that I have to perform because patients are depending upon me, like that more often than not was what pushed me through to continue giving 100%. Even though I was tired, like I look back, I don't even know how I, how I did it, to be honest, because that's just not me. Like I, don't, I do not sleep at night. I, you can ask my wife every morning, I get up to, to this day and I sit on the side of the bed and I just sit there. Eventually, she reaches over and she touches my leg, like "baby, you gotta, you gotta go." And then by the time I hit the the shower, yeah. the water like <laughs> wakes me up. Like I have to have a shower every morning. I'm I'm awake. I'm good to go. But it's something that I continuously uh, struggle with with regarding my sleep hygiene. Something that I'm I'm working on. But I mean, so far we out here. I I feel like I perform okay at work. I I don't know. Can I add one thing? Because I realized that we didn't answer the studying mm. portion. Yeah. We just answered the how you get yeah. sleep. The study portion, I think, <clears throat> it was for me at least, that I found pockets of time to study, like kind of asynchronously. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I told you I took like the train or the bus or whatever. And so when I was finishing my shifts, I'd hop on a bus uh, or be waiting on the bus. And that would be time for me to catch up on a case or read something that I uh, learned that day. Uh, the other thing that I did was I kept a running log in my phone of like, terms or things that I was interested in. And then I could just, wherever I was at, if you, obviously Keanu knows that if you travel in New York, let's say it is your mm-hmm. off day and you want to train, you want to train for like 45 minutes. That's mm-hmm. perfect time for me to study. I got 45 dedicated minutes where all I got to do is pay attention to the streets being named to get off of my train. And I'm in there reading about, you know, some type of case or an article or whatever. For me, for me, it was, I was like, I'm going to dedicate at least 30 minutes even if I came home and our shifts were 12 hours, so it was six to six. So it was either, you know, I'm either going to read a practice bulletin, some short burst of information, um, something random or something that I had learned today or encountered today that I didn't know. And that starts to add up. If you do that every single day, that little bit of information starts to build up and add up. So then once it's time for you to study for your in-service exam, it's just, okay, I'm just doing a refresher. I'm just recalling this information. Oh, I did read about that on that train ride or on that day I had off. So, you know, trying to just keep it consistent. Yeah, that's huge. For me, I I need like peace and quiet to be able to study. If I was on a train, I am looking at everything, especially in New York. I'm looking at everything going on. Ain't no way. <laughs> everything. I'm in everybody's business. Just distracted. <laughs> just, just, just watching the man come through. <laughs> Excuse me, ladies and gentlemen. May I have your attention, please? That's like, me. sir, please don't bother me. Please don't bother me, For me, like, you know, anesthesia residents, like, I could never study in the OR either. Like, I could never... Um, devote enough attention to actually learn something in the OR because I thought, you know, I'm supposed to be in here taking care of a patient. So for me, like some people read in the OR and Sudoku and whatever and and study and, you know, that's between you, your program, whatever. Um, but for me, I just couldn't ever focus enough attention on it to to study in the OR. So my weekends were when I would knock out like six or eight hours of study time. And, you know, if I got out of work early or I was post-call, that's when I would get that time in. But regarding like that 80 hour work week, man, I was like, like Kiana mentioned earlier, I was so happy to be making a paycheck. Like I I was thrilled. I think I was making like 60,000, $62,000 a year. I was, I was over the moon. Um, so the 80 hours didn't bother me too much because I really enjoyed the work. Um, it was just finding that balance to study and perform clinically is tough. And you also have to be able to, you know, have a, a personal life. You know, outside of of studying and and working, you also have to find that time to be able to do things that you do enjoy. So I still went out and had dinner with friends. I still went out and and had fun. And Stephen, there have been a few times that you've come to to New York to visit and we've hung out. So just trying to have that balance. It can't be all the time, but you should be able to, to fit it in. 
Let, let's talk about um, evaluations, because this is something uh, a couple of weeks ago, we, Tyler, we were at the SNMA conference. This always comes up because as uh, black and brown people underrepresented in medicine minorities, sometimes we're, we're moving into a situation where there's less diversity where we came from. If it was an HBCU we trained at, uh, most residency programs aren't incredibly diverse. Um, what are some of the things you experienced with regards to evaluations, um, positive, negative? How did you navigate that? I think that I got lucky uh, because in general, I've always, I always approached like each shift as though I was trying to like give it all my best and consistently grow. Like I had just that mindset when I walked in the door, I was like, yo, I got to get better today. I'm focusing on X. And I would always be able to keep inventory of that. Part of it, I think naturally is as a, I would say more mature, but it didn't, not by a lot, but just a more mature mindset or student rather in medical school. That was how I approached learning. It was just got to get better. got to figure something else out, add to this, you know, utility belt of things that I can do. So that carried over. Now, what was new to me was getting used to the various styles of feedback, because some people that you work with are, I just put it in the you know chart or put it in the record, and that's what you're going to get when they give you the, re- the evaluation at some point in your, your annual whatever review. Some people are on shift feedback, like they pull you aside afterwards and they give you the updates or whatever. Then there are people who do it in real time and will sometimes berate you or make you feel insignificant. Like you just have to really learn the attendings and their styles. And I don't say pitch to them, but I think that it, again, back to that idea of having a utility belt. Like if I was on a shift with somebody who I knew they like to have feedback right there in your face, I was like, I'm going to be a little sharper. I'm going to get them, make sure they give me feedback. And I'm going to make sure that I have the answers that they're looking for, almost as if I'm being, quote unquote, pimped on a shift. For the folks who gave me feedback after, I was like, all right, I'm going to beat them to the punch. After I sign out, I'm coming to them. Hey, what's your feedback for me today? And so that level of proactivity and tailoring my approach to each person kind of helped me, one, be a better people person, understand how to deliver uh, a variety of different things consistently. But two incorporating that feedback so that the next time they weren't telling me the same thing is because I tailored my approach to you. So I know exactly how this is coming. So I I got good at that very quickly. Where I wasn't in Brooklyn, the the evaluation system was based on rotation and there was a specific attending that was in charge of handling the, the evaluations for that rotation. Um, So what was really important was initially starting that rotation areas that you were expected to basically meet those goals. And also personally, like what were some things that I expected on this GYM rotation? I wanted to be better at doing uh, laparoscopic suturing or just basically setting goals for myself outside of just the, the program goals that needed to be met. Um, and you know, I agree with there are some attendings that are going to give you that feedback one on one, some that are going to berate you. And it's all in knowing the person. And you're you're definitely going to experience those individuals and you'll get an idea of everyone's feedback style. At the end of the day, how I approached whether it was the attending that was going to berate me or not, or if it was the attending that was going to give me the feedback right at that time was, again, taking that information and using it to my advantage. Yeah. So I like to tell, I agree with you hundred percent. It's a, it's a cheat code. Um, for us, we Absolutely. would get evaluations like months late. It'd be like three, four mm-hmm. months down the road. And then you read your evaluations. Well, I mean, maybe I just didn't log in and read my evaluations. There was that also. Um, <laughs> uh, and I'd be like, dang, yo, I worked with someone. So I thought it was a good day. And they, man, I had an evaluation that said, uh, I was like a deer in the headlights. Didn't know what I was doing. I was like, oh, that was a little harsh. I oh. thought we had a good day. How many days were you a deer in the headlight before Man, you know well, that's what they I thought didn't about think you? It was any days. So it's a good thing I, I read my evaluation. That's the point. So the two things that I learned from that, number one, I personally, as an attending, I hate um, writing feedback that people won't see for weeks down, down, down the line. Right. So I, I don't berate the residents I work with, but I am very straightforward. Like, hey, 
if you're not performing at an appropriate level, I will tell you that I, I watch their inductions and I go through everything that they're doing wrong right then and there because that way they can make an actionable change next time. And now what I write down is what whatever. They're going to get some numbers, right? And we've seen how those numbers get used in, in evaluations and competency committees. That that doesn't do it for me. For me, it's the the interactions. But what I recommend for every resident starting is to seek out that verbal feedback because you let stuff slide. You don't know what somebody's going to sit back and then write and in write. your in your file. If you go to them person to person, be like, hey, do you have any feedback for today? You give them an opportunity to just go off, get whatever it is off their chest. They're going to say whatever it is they're going to say. But when it comes to the writing part, they're going to say, mm, I already let them have it. I'm going to, you know, whatever they write is going to be a little milder than what it otherwise could have been. So that's one of the, the tips that one of my attendings um, kind of let me know um, really early on to kind of help temper what gets written down in your evaluations. Because for you, those of you that don't know, especially as underrepresented in, in medicine minorities, you come in, there's going to be number systems, it's rubrics. Um, and time and time again, we are evaluated lower than our peers for a variety of reasons you know, being underrepresented in the field, having attendings that don't look like us represent us. Um, so it's something that you need to be aware of from day one, keep your head in a swivel and make sure that you're being treated the same as everybody else and that you're, you're not um, being taken advantage of or, or, or subjugated. I felt like the times where I did both of those things, meaning like not what you just said, but incorporated the feedback uh, with a sense of urgency, but also sought the feedback, I gained the mm -hmm. trust mm -hmm. of those attendings a lot more rapidly. And uh, that that served me later, you know, pretty well in terms of, you know, when I was at the point where I needed to do more uh, senior level things or where they saw that I could do more senior level things, even though I may not have been a senior, they trusted me to do it. And it added, it aided my progression. Uh, the other thing that I thought was really unique was at some point you're going to have to apply for a job, yeah. like a real you know, job. And you need to have folks who can speak confidently to what you look like when you were trash, what you look like when you got better, and what you look like now that you are clinically excellent. And so the only way you'll know who to ask is if you are consistently seeking out that feedback and get a, a sense of, you know, who's good at this? Like who actually can speak to my abilities because they care. Yeah. Our program was split. So when I was at the county hospital, there were more attendings that looked like me. So I was the only black female in the intern class, in, in all honesty, in the program. Now that I think about it at that time when I came in as an intern. So I didn't have to seek out the feedback. They they were going to give it to me, especially <laughs> the attendants that looked like me, because they were just like, you're representing us. You're going to be the best in this class. And so, you know, even though there was some times where I was turning my neck, like, man, why they got to be so hard on me? I had an attendant pull me to the side. He was like, the only black resident in this program. Nah, uh-uh, uh-uh. We're going we're gonna to handle this. And, you know, I felt the weight of that and the responsibility. And, and ever since then, they, they had taken a Howard student after me. So yeah. I felt like, you know, I had set the tone. So I appreciate it. Definitely. Um, I know Talo has to to leave, but we're going to talk about transitions from the end of residency, fellowship, and then attending life. Now, Italo went to fellowship in social emergency medicine out in California. So can you talk um, briefly about what it was like to transition from residency to fellowship? Uh, similar things from when I transitioned from medical school to <clears throat> residency uh, that came come to mind are you're still trying to figure out like, is this, is this something that I'm going to finance, <laughs> whether or not through like some love offerings or through money that I've earned, money that I've created because of maybe moonlighting or uh, some type of extra savings that you've created? Like, how are you going to finance this move? That question comes up. And the good thing about jobs is <clears throat> depending on the setting, you can get a relocation package, hmm. which is not something that you can always get as a uh, medical student going into residency. So negotiating your contract is important. Negotiating with programs, being like, hey, yo, I need help. I can't just move across country. So that was one thing. Um, I think that some unique parts are realizing that this is going to be your first time where you're operating with the capacity of an attending. 
So there's a, a cognitive change that has to occur where before as a resident, you weren't really liable if something went wrong. You know, like, you know, I can always just be like, hey, it's the tenant. But as a fellow, <clears throat> it'd be like, I mean, you could be the reason why it went wrong, but you're not going to be liable. <laughs> you know what I mean? Whereas a fellow, you actually start to assume some liability. And there's a lot of trust being placed on you. Like, all right, so this is you. At my shop, um, all of our fellows act as attendees. Like, we're not on shift with someone hovering over us. It's literally you and residents. And so you start signing charts. And I had to really get used to the idea of like, all right, this is, there is no other person that I'm going to ask questions to unless I'm, you know, talking to a colleague. The buck stops with me and the nurses are going to come to me and the residents are going to come to me. So the, uh, the, the imposter syndrome will flare up and you have to find a way to quiet that very quickly. And I think the last part I'll add for the transition from like residency to fellowship is there is a financial change. Your pockets change. <laughs> you get a little bit more money, but that can't go to your head. You can't let the fact that now you can say, all right, I got this whole round in the next round. But that's where I'm, I'm not departing with you. <laughs> I'm just saying you you moved to that point where as a resident, you were like, hey, I can only afford my drink. <laughs> but when you are a fellow, you're like, look, hey, on the happy hour, I'll do a couple rounds. <laughs> do a couple rounds. But that, that'll go to your head so quickly. So realize that you are still broke. Realize that you still are in a, a building phase. Uh, don't let this money make you yep. new. Well, Dr. Brown, I know you got to run. Uh, thank you for joining us. We're definitely um, happy to have you back and happy to have you anytime on the podcast. Dude, I, I'm happy to be here. And obviously it goes without saying, uh, it's an honor to be in your presence, Kiana. You, you killing Thank you. <laughs> Um, Italo had to run. We are now joined by Dr. Dave <laughs> I was like, like, no cursing, no, uh, <laughs> keep it cute, very formal. I do my formal, like, my, my co-switching voice. Oh, no, it, it, it's whatever. <laughs> like, hello, I'm Dr. Jones. Like, those type of things. <laughs> 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 hello. Nate is a pediatric emergency medicine physician practicing in Philadelphia, a graduate of Robert Wood Johnson School of Medicine. He did residency at the University of Chicago. That's where our paths first crossed. He actually, fun fact, introduced me to my now wife forever in your debt. And now he's practicing, uh, or he completed a PEDS fellowship, a pediatric emergency medicine fellowship at Children's National and currently practices in Philadelphia. So Nate, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, thank you. A lot of this new format, I do have to attribute to Nate because he said the podcast was a little boring. And I never said it was boring. That's a lot. <laughs> Wow, you gonna call me out like it's not true. Needed to spice things up, I think. <laughs> that was a lie. No, I never said it was boring. I just said there was, I mean, you could, there's room for growth. There's always room for growth. You always, never want what you produce to be growth. the only the only, the only, only version. Keep it keep it fresh. Keep it going. Well, <laughs> on, on the topic of growth. Mm-hmm. There, oh, there we go. Okay. <laughs> June, June, we're doing transitions. So we talked uh, for a little bit about transitioning from uh, medical school to residency, and Italo talked about transitioning into fellowship. We're going to talk about transitioning into attending life. So, Kiana, you became an attending in 2018? 18, yeah. And Nate, 2022? Five minutes ago, yep. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So this is... <laughs> <It's just> like... <laughs> Fantastic. Like... Uh, some really good perspectives, starting with Nate, since you just joined us uh, mm-hmm. late, but <laughs> what was the biggest shock to you transitioning from your fellowship to becoming an attending? You know, what's funny is that like my fellowship was awesome in a sense that you got a lot of autonomy early, really early on in your training. Um, and that made it easier to have a little transition from I'm a trainee to now I'm the attending. The, the hard part, I think, is the balance of everything else. Because so much of your life has been focused up to that point to preparing to be where you aren't, where you now are. And then in doing so, you could easily um, have a little bit of a balance with work life. Um, you want to like take care of all your patients as the best you can, obviously. You want to, you know, if you're doing academic stuff, make sure you're showing up for that. Um, but you also like your your life is a little different. It's not as tied to all that things. Um, you have time now to do, hang out with your friends, loved ones, 
yeah, hopefully got money to do those things as well. And all those things become a little bit of, of a different balance. And so you have to re, re, reposition your focus. Kiana, you, you transitioned <clears throat> from a residency at SUNY Downstate, and you actually stayed on to be an attending. So what was that like for you? I don't know. I thought it was pretty cool. Uh, I didn't have to worry about learning a new system. I knew the system already. I knew everybody there. So in that aspect, I felt at home. It was just realizing that the book kind of stopped with me that you had residents, you had, you know, medical students that were then looking to you, patients that are looking to you for guidance. And I can't really turn to the attending and say, hey, well, what do you want to do? It was it was that it came to me. So, you know, initially there was some some shock associated with that. But you kind of get into your own little groove, your own little pattern. I always thought that it was very cool walking into the OR. Well, Dr. Ward, what do you what do you want on your tray? What should be on your card? Well, actually, <laughs> you know, you I go. want this. I, I want I want the zero viper on the CPS. <laughs> oh, I want it like that. <laughs> um, so I, I thought that that was pretty cool. But um, you know, I, I I think it was a, an amazing decision that I made to kind of stay on and kind of hone in on a lot of those skills. Um, because when you start out as an attendant, you you know, there's still things that you know you're you're a little you're a little shy about you're. Mm-hmm. You may not be as confident with, so I think in staying in the home institution, it kind of helped home in on those things. How was that first check? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I think the first check is. I, if, it's so funny. I didn't really feel it because um, I I live a very expensive life. No, I'm kidding. Um, I didn't, <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, no, it was funny because I mean I started and you know, obviously um, like some a lot of people. Don't, last couple of years in the middle of the pandemic. And so, um, and for pediatrics, a lot of our um, like extra moonlighting opportunities and things had been like taken away. So as a fellow, I was, I was definitely struggling in my last year of fellowship, but it feels good. It feels like you can like actually like, not have to worry about a few things. Well, besides paying your bills, but I mean, other than that, like it feels, <laughs> it feels real good. <laughs> Kiana? You know, it, you know, to me, this is the, you know, this is what I was waiting for. Uh, you know, <laughs> Honestly. It was, you know, I, you know, I feel like I've been working up into this moment. So not just, you know, being a great attendee, but also making the type of money that I always envisioned myself making. It's very important. I started before I made any big purchases. I met with a financial advisor yes. first mm. to make sure I had, you know, my life insurance, disability, all those things set up first, 401k, making sure I made all, you know, proper contributions and then I have all of that out of control. Yes. <laughs> That's the best. <laughs> I've yet to be able to do that. But yes, I will try. But you, right. you know, to me, I think the most important thing was, I I think, you know, with, with being a physician and, and making that type of money, it allowed for me, it allowed more freedom um, to be able to, you know, have someone clean the house so I don't have to do it or, you know, to, to do the laundry. So, it, you know, my time is precious. I think, you know, it's really important to spend time with your family and friends. So with having a little bit more money in the bank account, you're able to do those things. <laughs> yeah. How, how did you find your financial advisor? Um, actually, uh, Matt Aaron, he, he's uh, had a few individuals from Howard. <laughs> Yeah, we got to charge. Actually, reached out to me. Yeah, we do. Right, I mean, we charge you for that. Uh, <laughs> shout out, but continue. We're like, all right, now to the ad roll. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how he found me, but he he reached out to me, and I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Listen, Matt Aaron has a market cornered with black physicians. This man yep. is. <laughs> so what was that? Because uh, I, I need I need a financial advisor. So what was that conversation like? You just like had a phone call or something? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, because he's based out of DC. So it was basically kind of went over, you know, my paycheck, what my student loans look like and what reasonably I wanted to do over the next five years. Like were, were there any things that were important to me, whether it was paying off my student loans or buying a house or, you know, doing a trip or getting like any of those things, he, he made sure that that was kind of at the forefront. So I didn't lose sight of that with just trying to save money and, and kind of max out my 401k. Yeah, I feel like sometimes yeah. we're not taught how to be financially responsible um, yeah. at all. So, like, because I feel like when you are a medical student, a college student, or any obviously any level of education, you may not have the funds 
are know what it's like to have a surplus of funds sometimes. And so you operate a lot under uh, scarcity. The idea that like, if I'm going to eat today <laughs> and they got no yeah. free lunch, lunch lectures, <laughs> then I'm going to have to not go out on Tuesday or, um, and stuff like that. Like, but then when you, when you have the surplus of money, you just start like, oh, I can do anything I want. And it's like, actually, you really yeah. shouldn't. You really should probably be more careful. So, yeah, my, my experience was uh, quite different. Um, as those of you, I know, know you had a whole, whole oh, ass of condo. I joined the Navy, so my attending check isn't quite what uh, most anesthesiologists check is. I think I was like the lowest paid anesthesiologist in the country for a little while. Um, oh, when I first cute. joined the Navy, I think I was making like 50 grand a year. Um, oh, which is actually less than I made in residency. So I've had this nice little slow transition to making more money. Look forward to making uh, checks. I do too. That, I do yeah. too. Yeah. Anyways. Certain uh, dinners can be paid we'll, for we'll by. We'll move on to, to other more pleasant <laughs> topics. <laughs> but you also, you talked about this too in one of your episodes, but you've also had money during residency too, for, which, which a lot of residents did not have. So you, mm-hmm. you've learned how to manage your finances a little bit earlier, I think, than some people had to. So I, I did. I did get some bonus money. And as you you know, I'm I'm quite frugal. So I made ends meet. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. When when it comes to um your lifestyle choices, what was some of the bigger changes from becoming a resident or fellow to now you're an attending? What do you mean by, what do you mean by lifestyle choices? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um no no strip clubs. No, I I I feel like uh <laughs> My life, my lifestyle is all, but you know what's funny is I feel like I've always been key about maintaining my lifestyle. That like I am that typical happy hour brunch um, travel when I can type of person. And if I could do, I could do more than I could before. But I'm I'm very key of like maintaining that because that's partly how I stay grounded and how I stay focused. For me, wait, it it it's all in freeing up my time. Okay, so you know, like I said, having somebody clean up the house. Larry and I aren't going to do it. So (laughs) we need someone to clean the house. Okay. We need someone to do the lawn. We need to do, you know, just being able to have those luxuries so that I can spend time with my family, spend it with my friends. Yeah. Being able to travel and whatnot. I think that's really important because you think about, we spent a lot of our lives studying, not being able to do those things. Mm -hmm. Um, there were times, you know, especially during medical school, like I don't remember traveling all that much or having the luxury to do that. So now, just being able to travel, you go to you go to Vegas. What happens oh, in no. Vegas stays in Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> what happens oh, in really? Vegas stays in Vegas, Stephen. <laughs> uh, moving, oh, uh, moving on. Um, <laughs> moving forward. Um, <laughs> but yeah, being able like we try to take trips every few months. Okay. Um, yeah, so that's really important. As uh, attending physician, so Kiana, you started off in academics, and Nate, you still practice in academics. So how did you learn or navigate becoming an educator and really you know, having that huge responsibility of teaching residents, medical students? Nate, I know you had a little bit of that in fellowship, but Kiana, how did you transition into that role? I think part of it was innate. Um you know, I have a large family that's full of educators. So I think it was probably always in me. Um, I kind of just had to tap into it, especially like I remember being in medical school and in residency. And I always wanted to be, you know, an educator that, you know, at least pushed students that at least encouraged them to learn and not berate them or belittle them. So I kind of tried to tap into the educator that I had always wanted um, and tried to exude that. And, you know, I do miss it. I do miss it. I, I I think teaching is important. I just needed to branch out there just on my own. That makes sense. That makes sense. I Honestly, I feel that um, it's the same thing. Like, I think we all remember, like, our really good attendings and our really good, like, co-residents or our fellows that taught us and what made them so great about it and try to keep those same same ability, same everything. And I don't know, it's been, I, just, I, I say the same thing. I'm, I'm not, um, I don't think I'm a, natural educator <laughs> but i do think that because i i struggle sometimes with trying to figure out what residents need to know hmm. uh, we in pediatric emergency medicine we have residents that cycle through all different fields family medicine 
you know, general emergency medicine, obviously pediatrics. And some people, as you know, in residency, like, or even in medical school, will go into your field and some people will not. And so trying to figure out what level the learner is, what they need, what they would like to know, what they need to know, because everybody needs to know something of every quotation they have. So trying to figure out something. Many a time I've had to deal with a pregnant patient, I wish I paid more attention to OB. This is what I've learned to do it. Um, so I've learned along the way, just like try to give them a little nugget of knowledge because they may never directly treat kids, but they um, will at one point in time need to know how to. So. Yeah, which I, I guess comes to story time. Um, I will say, well, this is reminds me from residency when there I was at oh. the University of Chicago Emergency Oh, God, here we go. <laughs> and oh, I, I had to do, you know, usually in the ER, I figure out the system and I was like, okay, if there's a pelvic complaint or guide complaint, I avoided it. But I got stuck with one one night and I definitely called Kiana I said, I got to put a, a GYN console. She's in New York. I called her. I said, uh, I was supposed to uh, <laughs> oh, close God. the back of before, before I take it out, right? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Wow. So, it's, it's good to have friends uh, wow. in, in other specialties. That's good, though. Yeah. Um, good. I mean, I see, I've hit you up before with, like, sedation questions. Like, when I'm like, yeah. should I, can I use ketamine X, Y? Yeah, I've done that before. Yeah, it takes, um, it takes a village. Yeah, we're um, always, always there for each other. Yeah, my, my transition into being an educator, it was because uh, I definitely, you know, switched programs. I went from Chicago to Naval Medical Center, Portsmouth, had an academic, you know, residency program there. And it was very obvious, like, man, I'm the new guy. I, I look young compared to everybody else that's here. I'm the only person here that looks like me. How do I, you know, step into this role? And it was a lot, you know, I think imposter syndrome is the, the phrase that's widely used, but it was a lot of confirming to myself that I received good training. I know how to do anesthesia. I know how to practice safely. But that is couched with the institutional practices where they do things different every, anywhere you go. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it can be like a lack of trust if you move to a new system. The residents are like, I don't know this, this person and they practice differently. And it was almost like I had to prove myself, especially in the beginning, to show that, yes, I know what I'm talking about um, and show my level of training and, and earn the trust of the attendings, residents, uh, surgeons, especially as huge in anesthesia mm-hmm. that you want your uh, surgeons to really trust what you're doing. And it goes to show that even from day one at medical school, you're building that reputation for yourself. You're building a reputation mm-hmm. when you step foot on the wards as a third-year medical student and a fourth-year medical student. You're building a reputation as an intern, and it doesn't change once you're attending. You want to mm-hmm. be the person that your colleagues look to for advice, mm-hmm. for help. Um, so being present, being available, always being willing to lend a helping hand, especially in the beginning when you're establishing yourself. No, it's true. It's true. I think when you go to a new institution, I think I wonder if I always wonder like if our like our white colleagues have to do the same thing. Um, I imagine at some level, but. Probably not much more, um, but um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So what's you ever do? New, I mean, when you're a trainee, certain people expect you to be some a bit bit of your your years. Like if you're a senior resident versus an intern, there's some baseline expectation. But I do be I do think being a um, a black resident until a black attending is definitely hard when you're a new institution, especially if the institution is not. A very inclusive in its environment and understanding of that everyone who has went through training should know what they're doing and should be okay. And we were hired because we know how to do that. Well, yeah, no, I think it's the biggest thing. I, I've I've gotten I got my first my first month into um, my job. I had like at least three instances when I've had to like explicitly state I know what I'm doing and that this is why we think we should do what we do. <laughs> And but I think you have to. Um, that's what comes with the territory sometimes too. I think being a, a black physician, like sometimes you only you can only get, beat yourself up so much for things that are not your fault. Like it's not imposter mm-hmm. syndrome. I don't believe it's something that's an individual's fault. That's largely because yeah. you're in a system and an environment which doesn't support you. And so, in a way of being radical, is having the self preservation to say like, oh, no, I'm actually nah. This is this is what we're gonna do. You have we have questions about it, we can talk about it, but like I don't. I don't think we need to have you <laughs> ask me questions about like verse head versus Ativan. And I said, that's, yeah, I'm not trying to do all that. So, like, <laughs> and and uh, Kiana, you've since moved from academic medicine into mm-hmm. um, private private practice. Yeah, it's still technically pr- private practice. It's owned by Wake Forest. 
Yeah. What has that yeah. experience been yeah. like? It's been amazing. It's been a, an amazing experience. Um, you know, it, you know, the healthcare system, you know, it works here. Um, people love their job. And I think when people love their job, they're, they're more productive at work. The nurses love the system. The doctors love the system. But what I appreciate about it is that when they, if there's something that we feel doesn't work, they're very proactive about trying to find solutions to make that change. Um, so like our post-call day, we prefer to, you know, to have that day off versus go to clinic. So they're actively trying to hire mid-levels to take on more of the clinic responsibility. So we have our post-call days off. So I appreciate it. It's very different not having a, you know, resident that, you know, I do my cases, I either do them with another attending or with a, a PA hmm. that assists. So there, there are aspects of like, you know, surgical skills that, you know, you have to maintain. And I, I feel like, you know, the responsibility of having to teach someone isn't there. You know, it's just Dr. Ward and, and her OR case and, and getting through her cases throughout the day. So I really like it. Mm. And, and Maybe, to clarify... Because you transitioned from an inner city hospital to now what a community Mm -hmm. hospital in the south? Yeah, rural North Carolina. Yeah, (laughs) love it. I like it it here. (laughs) Love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah, it's crazy because like you you're exposed to different things in residency, and we have that tendency to think that this is the way it is everywhere, and. Mm -hmm moving around really opens up your eyes to the different types of practice. And burnout is huge. Burnout's been in the news, right? But I think, and I firmly believe that burnout, but don't quote me on this, this is probably <laughs> evidence-based or whatever, but burnout is like, if it's not working, whatever you're doing is not working, you got to change that. So whether that's moving from the inner city of New York to the boondocks of South Carolina... Oh no! See, not people from South Carolina. Are not going to be oh, man. Sorry, uh, inner city New York <laughs> to a small rural hospital. Change something, try something new, and see if that yeah. contributes to a better uh, lifestyle or sense of well-being. Yeah. You know what's interesting too is I wonder if because I always think there's a fear of trying to make that change because I yeah. feel like for so long we've been taught to just survive, mm-hmm. to just get through, mm-hmm. and then when you have the opportunity to be like, you know, what, I'm, I'm not going to go to the, the clinic after I worked overnight. That's not. That's not what I'm gonna do. Mm-hmm. Um, that is that's a lot of power in that, and I, that does help with the burnout. I mm-hmm. I found like for me, I've had to make decisions about like how much time I spend with all my charting and things. Like I I have, I have metrics, like everyone else has metrics, but like if I, if I go home and I can't do it, if I can't do it before I I leave the ED, then it will get done next day. It's, it's just mm-hmm. I won't sacrifice my well being because I can't take care of more kids mm-hmm. if I can't take care of myself. So. And this, this this career has to go on for a little bit longer than a year. So we gotta make, we gotta make it last. We gotta make it last. <laughs> um, there was a there was a feeling of you know I'm kind of letting I guess with leaving New York I was kind of letting the community that mm. I had trained you know I went to Howard so predominantly you know African American population population, Brooklyn, central Brooklyn, Afro-Caribbean patient population, and now moving to an area where I'm the minority in more rural North Carolina, there was an aspect of, you know, I, I am, am kind of, I don't want to say letting down, but I, th- there was an aspect of that that I had to kind of muster up and just say, I have to do this for my own mental health and my own, my own well-being that I, I need to step away from the academia at this time because it, it became to be a little too much um, mm-hmm. just because, you know, the responsibility of teaching medical students and residents is not something that I take lightly. I need to, like, when you have that kind of role, you want to make sure that you are setting forth the best students and, you know, the best providers. And, you know, to be able to do that, I think, you know, that that can take a toll on anyone. Exactly. Yeah. You can't pour from an empty cup. You gotta take care of yourself first. You touched on something that is so important as black people in professions in medicine. We carry like the weight of our ancestors as a minority text, and we feel like we we are solely responsible for increasing diversity in medicine, increasing diversity in obstetric and gynecology, and that we have to carry this load and in part, sure there's a responsibility there, but it, it can very easily overtake 
who we are and completely throw our lives out of out of focus and out of kilter. And we've got to really protect our, ourselves and realize that, you know, this is the only life that we get. Um, and yes, you can have a significant impact on the culture and on the community in other ways. Yeah, I always say your your, your simple presence in a, in a predominantly white oppressive system is radical, right? The fact that you exist in a system that doesn't is not built for you to exist. Yes. It's a radical act. So don't don't take don't take for granted that ability to just be present and just mm-hmm. be there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is that's the that's the that's the biggest thing. And then you can build from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wanted to kind of close by talking about we kind of naturally came to this theme, diversity in medicine. We've talked about or the literature is full of the leaky pipeline and how we lose uh, medical students and residents and folks along the way. And I struggled with helping people. Like when I was a medical student, I was just trying to get through, so I couldn't really mentor. In residency, I was trying to get through. I couldn't really mentor as much as I wanted to reach back. Um, as, as an attending, I fortunately had the time, had the resources to reach out and be supportive and encourage other students. You know, I started this podcast, for example. Um, how have the two of you been able to kind of help um, increase or support the diversity that we hope to see in our healthcare profession. Wow. Well, I don't have a podcast. I, wish I do all that work. I don't have a brand and a logo. I do all that. It's a big task. Uh, um, no, I. For me, I. It's always. I am always grateful for those who came before me who took the time to and still take the time to mentor me. Um, so I, if it's as easy as answering an email or a, t- or a tweet or um, having like a, I've had, I've had like, like, you know, ran, random like FaceTime conversations with people um, versus like long-term, like longitudinal mentorship as well. Like it's whatever I have the ability to do, but also what I think is going to be helpful for that person. Because sometimes it may not be me that's the person that they need. Sometimes I can put them in touch with somebody else that may be a lot more useful for them. Um, and they may not need, also may not mean like a, you know, a, a three-year mentor, mentorship or it may just be like needing a 30-minute conversation about something. Um, so I think just make yourself available. And I, I try not to be like, I'm so busy. Like, no, nah, I really just watched Netflix for the last like three hours. I could have <laughs> I could have easily had a conversation with you about this, but it's okay. Now, now but Nate, don't sell yourself short because you did earn a master's in public policy and mm-hmm. you are involved in um, pediatrics and policy yes. work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think, well, yeah, so I'm also part of the section of um, Minority Health Equity and Inclusion at the American Academy of Pediatrics. And a lot of the work that we've done there has been looking at increasing work- workforce diversity, building it from there. And I think it's been helpful. Like, I think, but also what's one of my passion is, I don't think every single person who is a black doctor should be, um, everyone everyone needs to be a mentor, right? In some yeah. places, some people, some people may not be a Great mentor may not want to be a mentor, and that's that's okay too. We don't look at you a little crazy, but I mean, <laughs> people give you a side eye. But, um, but it's it's and also not every the black you know, or even other marginalized um, provider is should do diversity, equity, inclusion work. Like it's not you don't you're not being black doesn't mean you know DEI work, um, but it also means you don't always have to be the one to do it. We need we need we need we need us in other spaces too. So. I don't know. I definitely think I did a lot more mentorship where I was in Brooklyn just because, you know, I had access to a lot of different medical students. So, you know, especially when students are coming through the rotation, definitely had more exposure and and everybody reached out to me just because, you know, you're the clerkship director, you're the associate program director. What, how can you help with, you know, my, my path through not just OBGYN, but other aspects of medicine. Um, so students have definitely reached out, kept in touch with a few. Where I am now, I don't really have much access to medical students. Um, they don't really rotate with us. I think more PAs do. But I'd be willing to, to continue mentorship if you have anybody that's interested in obstetrics and gynecology. Because it's, it's not easy. You know, programs are small and, you know, I definitely had a lot of people, especially in, in our class, that were trying to discourage me from going into the field just because of the lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So um, it'd definitely be great to hear from someone that's actually in the specialty. Yeah. And and if you want to hear more about the specialty, you can go to season one plug. of the Black Doctors Podcast. <laughs> where we have episodes <laughs> <that> <laughs> 
They, they, they as well as Stevie, you should be coming in, Shaggy. We got to check with everybody this episode. Everybody, Matt, Eric, we get checked. We go get checked. On that note, the talent's getting uh, unruly. We're going to uh, call it quits. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Black Doctors Podcast. Special thanks to Italo Brown, Nate Jones, Canna Ward. Hope you like this new format uh, where we're going to really um, bring some incredible folks on so you can hear their voices and we can explore some of the tougher topics that we deal with as Black people in medicine or trying to get into medicine. So thanks so much for tuning in and listening to the Black Doctors podcast because representation matters. Thank you so much. He knew that. Oh, where's the melodica? All right.